We'll go ahead and be in Colossians today. We're going to finish up a two-week quick series that'll lead up to steps, which is tonight at 5.30. Did I mention that? I want to make sure I mention that tonight at 5.30. Um, we'll be in Colossians chapter 3. Before we get there, I don't normally do this. I do it when it, when it deems itself necessary, um, but I do want to touch on some current events that happened this weekend, um, some heartbreaking current events that happened this weekend. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, this weekend in Charlottesville, uh, Virginia, um, before this weekend, they had decided, the government had decided to take down a statue of Robert E. Lee um, in a college in Virginia. And there was a pro- there's been protests, and there was another protest this weekend. It was a permitted protest for uh, Saturday morning. Um, it was called Unite the Right, and it was a protest uh, of people who are, are from the alt-right group, or alternative right, the far, the far right. For those who don't know who, what the alt-right is, the alt-right um, is an extreme right political belief um, that is really centered around uh, white nationalism. And what white nationalism is that uh, white people are the majority in this country and should stay the majority. So we don't want to bring anyone else in that would jeopardize the majority of white people. We don't want to change anything. Our culture should be predominantly white because we are currently predominantly white. Um, and it's a, really, it's, it's, it's a really silly modern word to replace white supremacy. That's all it is. It's that white, should, white people should stay on top. Hello. Hi. Um, that white people should stay on top. And, and that's what the alt-right is about. And so they had a protest um, and on, uh, on Saturday. Before the protest, something that was more spontaneous or seemingly spontaneous was Friday night. Um, a, a lot of people from the alt-right movement um, got tiki torches and marched through the, through the town uh, yelling things um, uh, about white nationalism and white supremacy. They yelled things like blood and soil, which is an old Nazi phrase um, about how, uh, about eugenics and uh, ethnic cleansing. And they used a lot of Nazi uh, salutes and a lot of racism is really what it is. And, and, and what racism is, for those who don't know, is it's just evil. It's just straight up evil. Um, there's no excuse uh, for racism, there's nothing good about racism ever. White nationalism is evil. The alt-right is absolutely evil. Um, it's what it is. It's satanic in its, in its essence. Um, I was really proud. I'm, we're not Southern Baptist here. Uh, I don't have anything against Southern Baptists. We're just not Southern Baptists, but I was proud of our Southern Baptist brothers in June. They, unanim- they have a meeting once a year, of, uh, and, and mess- messengers come from all the different churches, and they come to this one meeting once a year, and they they, do, they have these resolutions and they talk about things that are going on and, and they unanimously passed a resolution to condemn the alt-right. So all Southern Baptist churches unanimously came together. There was some infighting. You might read in the news about the language in which they condemned them. Um, some deemed it was too harsh and didn't, wasn't gracious and loving enough, although they still wanted to condemn it. But ultimately, they unanimously passed a resolution to condemn the alt-right. Um, and it's something that we should know about, that this is happening, that this is something that's happening in America, that there are now color photos uh, 
of people using the Nazi salute. Like, I, I feel like we all should wish those, those, those photos stayed in black and white, but now there's color photos of things like that happening. And that's just not, that's not okay. That's not right. And we should, as Christians of, of all nationalities, all ethnic backgrounds, should stand against something like this. Um, there's no excuse for it. Saturday, uh, there became anti-protest protesters. So protesters who were protesting the protest. Um, and a, someone drove a car into the, anti, the, the anti-protest protest and wounded about 19 people and killed one person. Um, so it was a heartbreaking chain of events that came from this. Um, we, we do live in a nation uh, where free speech is important, where the, uh, one's ability to speak freely and to assemble and protest is important, but at the same time, we should stand against those protests that are evil. We should stand against those ideas and ideals that are evil. And the alt-right is one of them. White nationalism is one of them. And white supremacy is obviously one of them. So um, I posted something on Facebook yesterday that just says the Grove stands against the alt-right. Um, I want everyone here to know that, that we at the Grove stand against the alt-right. If, if that's not okay with you, um, this probably isn't the home for you. Um, so I just want everyone, I want to make that clear. I know that sounds harsh, but there's no room for that kind of evil in Christianity. There's no room for that kind of thinking in the Holy Spirit in the same person. And so we have to stand against that. We have to say no when things like that come. And that came yesterday. Um, and it was heartbreaking to see, see things like that happening in 2017. Things that should have stayed in the early that should have never happened, but since they happened, should have stayed in black and white and in the early 1900s. So my heart broke yesterday just watching the news unfold. Um, but I'll pray for us and pray for our country, and then we'll get into Colossians 3 and kind of wrap up this two-week series and get ready for tonight. Father, I uh, come before you, Lord, just thankful for your grace, God. Um, thankful that we live in a country where we can speak freely um, and we can we can uh, worship freely, Lord. And I think religious freedom and freedom of speech is important for all groups, regardless of whether we agree or not. But I want us at the Grove and me personally, my family, to freely speak against things that are evil, things that are wrong, things that are hate-filled and hurtful, Lord. And so I pray, God, that as a people, as a church, and as a church universal, Lord, that we would stand against those things that are evil, those things that are contrary, contrary to your word, contrary to the doctrine of creation, the Imago Dei, Lord, that we are all created in your image. And I pray, God, that you would um, show us in our hearts how we are to respond, God, personally, um, how we are to think personally, and how we are to feel about these events personally, Lord, that we would feel as your heart feels, God. We would weep with those who weep, in times like these, God. Um, I pray this morning that you would just open up uh, our hearts to hear your truth, Lord. As we read in Colossians, I pray that you would just prepare our hearts, Lord, that as we read your word, that it would read us, Lord, and we, we would be mastered by uh, the God of the word, you, Lord. I'm thankful for all that you're doing and all that you've done, and I pray this in your son, Jesus' name, amen. So we'll be in Colossians chapter three, um, we're going to talk about this term called grace-driven effort. Uh, it's not a term that I coined or came up with. It's, someone, uh, it's a term that I read first from D.A. Carson, a phenomenal author. And we'll read the quote it comes from a little bit later. 
we're going to be talking about this idea called grace-driven effort. We've been talking about the seriousness of sin and how Christians ought to live, and we're going to continue that theme today, Um, and we're going to talk about really how we do that and how we live the Christian life. So we're going to read in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 17. I'm going to read verse 1 of chapter 3 first, um, because I think it sets up everything else that we're going to see here in Colossians. So Colossians 3.1, and then we'll jump to 5 and go through 17. Colossians 3.1 says, If then you have been raised with Christ. That's not all of one, but I want to stop there. If then you have been raised with Christ. So in the first two chapters of Colossians, Paul is setting up um, something that might be called Christology, just who Christ is who, uh, what the gospel is. This, is. this is who Jesus is. This is what Christ has done. Um, here's the deity of Christ. Here's the sufficiency of Christ. This is why we put our trust in Christ. And now he's shifting in verse one of chapter three. He's saying, if then you have been raised with Christ, this is how you should live. And Paul does this a lot. There's a specific rhythm to Paul's letters. Um, All of his letters start with this, this is who Christ is, this is what Christ has done, this is the gospel. And if you believe this gospel and you've been been raised with Christ, this is how you live. So the later half of Paul's letters involve a lot of, you know, this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do. Um, It's going to continue on. He does it in Corinthians, he does it in in, uh, the book of Romans. And so he does this a lot as chosen ones, as holy, as beloved have compassionate hearts, kindness, all these different things. So we're going to read verse uh, 5 through 17. It'll be up here, so you know I'm not making it all up. Verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, wrath has been stored I'm sorry, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. And now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being removed, renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if the one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, these put on love, which brands everything together in perfect harmony, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and thankfulness in in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So there's a lot there. We read a lot of verses. But you see Paul saying, if you have been raised in Christ, then then stop doing these things and start doing these things. And that's what he says. And I love what Paul does here because he's got these, these giant things that everyone agrees with, right? Like I think we all agree 
that we should not be sexually immoral. We should not have evil desires. But he doesn't just stop with these big sins, these big ideas. He continues on. He doesn't, he doesn't let anyone off the hook. He rolls it down on the everyday practical level that, um, that we're, no one in this room gets off, off clean. Uh, he talks about the Greek, the Jew, the circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, slave, free. Whether you've got a background in church or, you, or this is your first day in church, um, whether you have no background at church, no one's off the hook. This shouldn't surprise you. This is the basic Christians behave this way. They don't behave this way. We do this if we've been raised in Christ um, and we do not do this if we've been raised in Christ. But there's, there's some tension here. A couple of points of tension I want to point out. And the first one is that Paul is saying, if you've been raised in Christ, then put away these things because we don't do this. And yet he's telling us not to do those things. So he's saying, if you're raised in Christ, you don't do these things. But then he's also reminding you not, like, don't do those things. So there's some tension there because if, if you're raised in Christ and you're not doing those things, you shouldn't have to be told not to do those things. You're just not doing them. So there's some tension there. Why would he tell people who are raised in Christ not to do things they're not doing? Because in us, if we're honest with ourselves, the second point of tension that if we're honest with ourselves, most of us do something on this list. Most of us have probably done something on this list today, this weekend. Like, we're not getting away here clean. At some point this morning, you realize, some of you might have realized, hey, we're going to be late to church if we don't hurry, so let's hurry. And you, maybe, maybe you get up, you get out of bed, and maybe you have to spank one of your kids, or you yell at your wife to hurry up, or you're getting an argument on the way to church. Like, something happened today where you acted in a way that you should not have acted. Something happened this weekend where you did something on this list. Nobody gets off this list or gets away from this clean because he's not just limited to sexual morality and impurity and evil desires. He's talking about anger, malice, slander, lying to one another. All of us have fallen short. All of us have failed. And for most of us, this is a frustrating reality in our Christian life, that there's residual effects of our sinful nature still in us. We have thoughts, actions, and desires that are still wicked, that are still evil, and they're in there. Maybe they're visible, but for most of us, they're not visible. Because, because here's the thing. Some of these things are external. Some of these things are internal. Some of them are either or. So what I mean by that is, is that anger, anger is something that can be external, right? So I can, you could see my anger towards someone if I hit someone or I throw something or I slam something down. You're seeing my anger. But at the same time, I could have anger towards someone. You'd never know it because anger is also something that's inter it's, it's internal. I could be angry towards someone. You'd never know it. It's something that's inside of me. And, and I think, and, and, and this is basic Bible Belt misconception of Christianity, is that if I can just control my external behaviors, then I'll be okay. If I can just stop being angry on the outside, then I will be okay. No one will see the anger. Uh, this is what the Bible's about controlling my behavior, and it's not what Jesus is about. A lot of these things are external, but almost all these things manifest themselves internally as well. So the idea of if I can control my external behavior, I will be free, is just not true. And the, and the reason I said that most of us are frustrated with the residual effects of, of sin is because there are some of us 
that don't even think it's there anymore. That I, like, there's, there aren't effects of sin. That you've so controlled your external behavior that you're okay. It's okay that you're angered in your heart. It's okay that you have lustful thoughts. It's okay those things because you don't act on them. You don't do those things. I've never murdered someone. I've never committed adultery. I still have lustful thoughts. I still have anger towards my brother. And so we, we think that, that we're this big spiritual Christian. We have this Superman logo on our chest and we're, we're doing well. And the problem with that is that 1 John would say that you're a liar and a fool for thinking you have no sin in you. And so we have to be careful to think that once we, once we master our external behavior, we'll be okay. Once I master all these things, if I, if I don't, Look at things I shouldn't look at on the computer anymore. If I don't throw things anymore, I don't hit this person anymore. If I don't do these things anymore, then I'll be okay. Then I'll be free. I'll be doing what the Lord has for me. But that's not the case. So that was my uh, semi-weekly, you might not be saved speech. But things get a little bit more complicated after this. Because if God is completely sovereign, and he is, and we're saved by grace through faith, even, even the faith to believe is given, us, given to us by God so that no one can boast. If that's true, then I think some of us get confused on how we mature in Christ. Because since Christ has started this work and he begun this work, what does it look like for us to pursue maturity and don't fall into the traps of legalism or the traps of checklist Christianity where I'm just checking the box and I'm doing these things because I'm supposed to do those th- these things. And I'm not doing these things because I'm not supposed to do these things. How does it look to truly mature in Christ? I want to read a quote from D.A. Carson, a phenomenal author. It's in a book, of, it's in a volume, volume two, of For the Love of God. Carson says this, Peaceful people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, and obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we've been liberated. Now, I love this quote because it's absolutely true. And the way I've said it for the past year at this church is no one stumbles into godliness. No one accidentally becomes godly. No one one just wakes up one day and they're more mature than they were the other day. That's not how this happens. But, how, but if that's not how it happens, how do we pursue godliness without falling into checklist Christianity? How do we pursue maturity without falling into legalism where we, tr- where we step outside of grace and try to earn what's been freely given? How do we do that? Well, there's six things that I want to talk about. We'll go through them, some of them more quickly than others, but there's six things. Six things. And, and number one is this. That grace-driven effort comes from a new heart. Comes from a new heart. Jesus would say it this way, that, that you have ears to hear and he who has eyes to see. So we're given a new heart by God. The Bible's full of this imagery. In, in, in uh, Ezekiel, it talks about taking out a heart of stone and giving a heart of flesh, that he'll put his spirit within us. Um, so uh, there's, this, there's this part 
uh, in Corinthians, we have this idea of walking into darkness and we've been brought into light. In Ephesians, it's this idea that we've been dead in our trespasses, but now we're made alive in Christ. Um, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, this leader, and he says, what must I do to have eternal life? And what does Jesus tell him? He says, be born again. And Nicodemus has this problem with that. And he, he says, well, hey, my, my mom's not going to let me climb back inside her womb. So what do I do? And that's a legit question. It's not a silly question. Like, I know my mom, she's not game for that either. It's not going to happen. It's going to be a really weird conversation. So it's a legitimate question. But this idea, what Jesus is talking about here is this word that I want you to hear and understand. It's this word called regeneration. That as Christians, we've been regenerated. We've been given a new heart. We've been given a spirit within us. And we can live a life of godliness. According to Romans, we are walking in darkness, deceived, buying into lies instead of the truth, but that God then justifies us by Christ, regenerates our hearts, gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. So there's this idea that grace-driven effort has to come from a new heart. You cannot have grace-driven effort. You can't have maturity in Christ without a new heart. Because for the legalist, the legalist pursues God out of a list of things they need to do to, to please God. But grace-driven effort is, is born out of a new heart, born out of a new person, born out of a new spirit. Now, there's certain places in the Bible Belt where we live in the South where doing the right things gives you a lot of clout, a lot of power. I'm just going to be honest that doing the right things leads to positions of power and positions of, of, of uh, prominence within the community. I've been, I'm, I'm not going to name any church in particular, but I've been in a lot of churches where the, the leadership of the church are filled with people who do the right things. And when we, when we go to find the new leader for the church, we ask them about the things they do, the businesses they've run, um, reading their Bible, prayer, but we never really think about, we think about, are they good leaders? Can they manage money well? Can they teach? And sit, but we never really think about, does this person have a genuine love for the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there, is there evidence that there's a regenerated heart in this person? Because churches are, are filled with people who do the right thing and run businesses well, so they become elders, deacons, they become um, trustees, or whatever your church wants to call it. But they might not be people with regenerated hearts. I don't know. But I do know the things we look at, the criteria we look at is, do they do this and do they not do this? Do they not go here? Do they go here? But the motivation for grace over an effort is a new heart, not the applause of man. Here's something that I could get, I could get in trouble for, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak in generalities, and I don't want anyone to get mad at me. Please don't email me or text me how mad you are. I'm going to speak in generalities. I know it's generalities. The way this plays itself out, instead of a great, instead of grace-driven heart, I'm sorry, instead of grace-driven effort and a new heart, the way a lot of men, I'll talk to men first and I'll talk to women afterwards, but in a lot of ways men try and fight sin is they pit sin against sin. And so this is what happens. So let's say you're a man, you have a lust problem, which is a predominant issue for a lot of men. You have this struggle with lust and looking at things you shouldn't look at and doing things you shouldn't do. We have the children's room. I could be more specific, but I hope you guys know what I'm talking about. We have this problem. And so what we try and do to fight that problem is we pull ourselves up 
by our bootstraps. We're going to set out with our own will and our own power. We're going to beat lust. We're going to beat these things. So we've got this like gladiator arena and we have this thing we know is not good. And so we're going to beat it. We're going to stop doing it. I'm going to get rid of this. I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to stop going here. I'm going to stop doing these things. And so we're, we're pitting sin against sin. We're, we're saying lust is bad. I need to kill it with my own self-righteousness. I need to kill it with my own self-will, my own self-sovereignty. And so you're pitting sin against sin. And the, the problem with that is someone's going to win, but it's still going to be sin. Sin can defeat sin. Absolutely. But you're still going to have sin as the winner. And see, the way this plays itself out with, with women, and, and I, I don't know a lot of women. I know the one God gave me to marry, the one he birthed into my home. But the way I've seen it play out, and this is a generality, and I'm saying this, I know I don't know all women, but the way I see this play out a lot in women that I've counseled or talked to or married, the one, is that in the same arena that man pits lust against self-righteousness, a woman will put fear and anxiety against control and manipulation. That, that there's this, this idea of, of, of fear and anxiety of, of, of finances, the way your children's going to turn out, the way people think about you. And so you, you, you take that fear and anxiety, which is absolutely sin, and you're, and you're pitting against it control and manipulation. If I can just control these things, control this person, manipulate the way this person thinks about me or the way this person sees my finances, then I'll be okay. And the problem with that is although one of those things will win, sin is winning. When we pit sin against sin, there is no winner that works. It absolutely doesn't work. But grace-driven effort is birthed out of a new heart, a regenerated spirit that was given us to us by the Holy Spirit of God. Number two is grace-driven effort uses the weapons of grace. And there's three primary weapons of grace I want to go through. Um, the first one is the blood of Christ. So I want to read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 for you. But now in Christ Jesus, you were once far off, but have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, but have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, this is why I love this verse. It says, because of the reason I've been brought near to God is because of the blood of Christ. So that my right standing before God has little, has nothing to do with me but the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross, the blood of Christ on the cross is the reason why I can stand before God, why I can gaze upon the face of God, while I can see the glory of God has everything to do with the blood of Christ and nothing to do with me. Because there's, there's times where I'll fail. If I can be completely honest with you, here's something I struggle with. There's times where I see bad things happen to people and I'm not sad, I'm thankful. There's times where I see Things that happen to certain people, bad things happen, and I'm, instead of being sad or, or mourning with those who mourn, I'm glad that it happened. I'm just being honest. There are times, um, there's this thing in me that goes, yes, it's justice. person deserves that. They wronged me in this way. They deserve this to happen. Now, in that moment, I don't want justice for me. I want mercy and grace for me, but I want justice for the other person but there are those people where I'm like, God, will you just like let everything fall apart in their life? Like literally just like blow it up. Just let it all fall down. Like I would, I would like that. And so that happens to, something good happens to them. And someone's like, hey, did you hear so-and-so? Like got a new job and they got this whole, I was like, oh, 
why did that happen? Like, that's not right. That's not what's supposed to happen. But something bad happens to the same person. I'm like, yes. So I don't respond with grace and with mercy. I respond with this sense, this twisted sense of justice. And see, the way this works is this works etern- internally for me, not external. So if, so, so if someone comes and says, hey, did you hear what so-and-so, you know, something happened to so-and-so, I don't go, yes, out loud and say, okay, what hospital are they in? I'll go meet you there. It's all internal. It's all something that happens inside. So no one gets to see this. But the good news is even though I don't obey and I'm not righteous and I don't do the things or think the things I'm supposed to do, God loves me not because I think the things I'm supposed to think or do the things I'm supposed to do or because I obey the law. He loves me because of the blood of Christ. I have acceptance with him I have the ability to pursue him. I have the ability to approach the throne of grace because of the blood of Christ. And through the lenses of that blood, he sees me as spotless, perfect in his adopted son. So we fight the residual effects of sin in our hearts with the blood of Christ. But we also fight it with the word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may, not, may be competent, equipped for every good work. So I want to come back to that one, but we fight with the blood of Christ, we fight with the word of God, and thirdly, we fight with the new covenant. Hebrews 9, 15 says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from their transgressions committed under the first covenant. So the first covenant is this law that you have to do these things. You do these things, you get this. And all of us, everyone in this room has fallen short. But see, the the thing about the new covenant, the purpose of, of, oh, I'm sorry, the purpose of the first covenant, the purpose of the commands, the purpose of the law is to show you that you need someone else, that you need something else, that you're inadequate to follow those commands. You're inadequate to keep up your side of the covenant. Now, the promise of the new covenant is, where, is that where you have stumbled, where you have stored up the wrath of God for yourself, Christ has intervened. He's intervened. He's absorbed that wrath. And that's the promise that the death that has occurred has erased the curse of the Old Testament. So now that while we're in the New Testament, we're spotless and clean because of Christ. And we need to hear that because here's the thing that grace driven effort does is that we fight with the new covenant and that when we stumble and we fall, we can run to God instead of run from him. See, the new covenant allows us to run to God instead of from him. Because we don't have to be in fear of his wrath because Christ has absorbed that. We don't have to be, fear of, be in fear of his anger because Christ took the anger of God that he had for us for himself. And you have to hear this in church. You have to hear this in your life. And you have to preach this to yourself. So we fight the residual effects of sin with grace driven effort, we use the weapons of sin. I'm sorry, the weapons of grace. But the, the legalist, however, uses his own vows and his own resolutions, his own might, his own effort, and his own creative, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll stop going there, and I'll start going here. 
He uses the law in a different way to try and control his behavior in a way that the law was never meant to do. If I keep the promised law, I'll gain eternal life. And that's just not what the new covenant is. Or he uses the fear of the law. If I break the law, then I'll go to hell. I'll be punished. And we might say, we might, we might believe those things. We don't believe those to those extremes. So maybe for us, it's not if I keep the law, I'll get eternal life. And if I break it, I'll go to hell. Maybe for us, it's if I keep the law, then God will bless me. And if I break the law, then he'll remove his blessing from me. And that's nowhere in scripture. And that's nowhere, like we, 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 need, to, we need to understand this. And be, or or maybe, maybe, maybe that is true, but maybe we have a warped version of what blessing is. Because if we think that doing the right thing brings a blessing to God, and then you read something like John the Baptist gets his head chopped off, like maybe that's a blessing from God because he got to go home early. But that's not the kind of blessing we're expecting when we, when we do things. And so we have to understand that this isn't how this works. We don't earn God's favor. We don't earn his blessings. We can't lose his blessings or lose his favor. And the reality is we couldn't if we tried anyway. If that was the way, we couldn't do it. Like none of us can keep the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments shouldn't be super hard, right? Like, like there's something you learn or you used to learn in kindergarten. Like it's on the wall of kindergarten. It's on like California liberal area, like our kindergarten, we learn the Ten Commandments. It should be that easy. It's kindergarten ethics. But none of us pass it. I'm not saying like, like none of us like get 100%. Like we all fail. Like we're all liars. We've all coveted. We've all committed adultery in our hearts. We've all committed murder in our hearts. We've all worshiped other things besides God. Like we, we don't pass. We completely fail. And there are two great rebellions. Some people are going to try to find freedom by breaking all the rules. And some people are going to try and find freedom by keeping all the rules. But both of them scream out to God, I don't need you. I can do this on my own. I can find freedom on my own. So we fight with grace-given weapons. Here's the illustration I've used before, or I've heard before and used before, and I just love. And I'm reminded of it because Margie's expecting another child. Um, but when children grow up at the Mason family, we're, we don't have early walkers, they're late walkers. Um, they walk somewhere between like 13 and 14 months. Margie could probably tell you the exact day, place, time, what the weather was like when they walked, but I don't really remember. I just know they walked at some point, they're walking today. Um, but they're, 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 they're late walkers. And for Elium and Salome, we both have the same furniture. We've had different furniture this time, which I don't know how this is going to work out. But we have the same furniture. And here's what happens when kids learn to walk. Eventually, they begin to pull themselves up onto a coffee table and couch. We had both those. They start scooting around this thing, right? So they start kind of going around like they're on American Ninja Warrior trying to traverse something. And they're, they're going around the house like that. Or they're pushing something along, starting to walk. But eventually... Something catches their eye that they want that's not within reach of the couch or in reach of the coffee table. So they begin to take a step away from the coffee table and away from the couch. And this is how babies are built. At least my babies have all been built. I know there's exceptions to this, but my babies are all built like skinny little snake bodies with super big fat heads. And so here's what happens when a baby starts to take a step away from the couch or away from the coffee table is physics kicks in. Now, I didn't go to college or graduate college, but what I do know is that gravity works and, and, that, and that head wants to fall. That head is way too big for that body. So what happens, they take a step and their head starts to fall down. And one of two things is going to happen in that moment. In, in, in the baby's mind, in Elium's mind, in Salome's mind, was I take a step or I die. Because I'm, I'm coming down fast. Like my head's going to hit this coffee table. It's going to hit this floor. So I take a step or I die. And what happens is they take a step. 
And so my, so my son takes a step, takes another step, and then he just falls and hits his face on the ground. But what happens in that moment? Step, 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 fall. And the parent, like in that moment, there's celebration. People are freaking out like, hey, did you get that on video? Like, let's put that on Facebook. Don't forget to tag me. Make sure everyone sees it. I'll share it. Let's, let's, let's tell everyone that our son step, 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 fall. No one, I've talked to many parents, I've seen this happen myself, no one in that moment goes, oh, my son's such an idiot. Like he can only take three steps and then he falls. My son is such an idiot. No one says that. That's not what happens. In the same sense, in our maturity, in our discipleship as Christians, when we start moving, we start taking these steps and we go step, 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 fall, I don't think God's in heaven Go, what an idiot. Why couldn't he just keep walking? He should be walking by now. Some of us are late walkers. Some of us are early walkers. But the step, 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 fall is celebrated. Now, maybe there's an angel somewhere in heaven who says idiot, and God says, you really want to go down to the demons? Shut your mouth. That's my son. That's my daughter. They just took their first steps. I don't care that they fell. Jesus, spirit, you get that on Twitter? Like, make sure you videotape that. Like, that's what's happening. There's celebration. There's excitement in heaven. And we step, step, fall. So we can run to God in that fall instead of run from him. And I want to say to you, it's a mark of maturity in Christ when you run to him when you fall. And nothing more in Christianity will show your immaturity than when you run from him when you sin. Because what that shows is a lack of understanding of the most basic part of Christianity, which is the gospel. It's the most basic part, but it's something we ever grow, something we ever grow from or leave. But the gospel is the foundation of everything we believe, and it shows immaturity when we run from him instead of when we run to him. Because here's the thing. Um, there's the, we're trying to te- I'm trying to teach my kids responsibility. I know they're like young, they're like four years old, but I'm trying to teach them responsibility. I don't know if you've heard, we have a real problem with an- adolescence in our, uh, our culture. I think what is adolescence like up to like 28, 29 these days? Like I, I think technically I'm still an adolescent and I'm like married with, three, with three, almost three kids and a house and stuff, but I'm technically still an adolescent. And so I'm trying to, to teach Elium not to be like that when he grows up. I don't want him to be 28, still living with us without a job, like, I don't want that. So I'm trying to teach him responsibility. So one of the things we do is we make him clean up his own messes. And I don't know if you've ever done this, if, you, if you're a parent, but if you're not a parent, let me explain to you how a four-year-old cleaning up his own mess looks like. They just smear it everywhere. That's all they do is they find crevices and cracks in the, in the table and they smear stuff in there and it just gets, every, all the mess just gets moved around. That's all that happens. In the same sense, as Christians, when we try and clean up ourselves, all we're doing is smearing around. Our face might be super clean, but our hands are really dirty. And we try and clean our hands, and, and we, we just smear it all over our chest. But now our hands are clean, but our chest is dirty. And so as Christians, like, we can't wash it off by ourselves. Someone else has to come. So what happens is like, oh, Elium, hey, you did a great job. Um, why don't you go upstairs? And he goes upstairs, and I clean it up. But I want him to think he's doing a good job. I don't know if that's lying. Maybe I should repent. But... Um, when we try and clean things up ourselves, what we reveal is we don't understand the gospel. We don't understand the blood of Christ. We don't understand the new covenant. Grace-driven effort comes from a new heart and it uses the weapons of grace. And grace-driven effort attacks the roots and not just the branches. So we're thinking about this thing like a tree. 
and that tree is sinful, there's a bad tree and it's producing bad fruits. We can, we can attack the branches all we want, but the tree is going to keep growing new branches. It's gonna keep, if you just mow over weeds, weeds keep growing up. In fact, what you typically do is you spread weed seed all over your lawn when you mow it over because you're cutting down that, you're spreading it, and so now more weeds are going to grow up. What you have to do is you have to come in and grab the weed and pull it out by its roots. And we all have roots to our sin. If I could be honest with all of us and just be frank, like there's a reason why you're crappy at things. There's a reason why you're a crappy husband. There's a reason why you're a crappy wife, why you're a crappy employee, father, mother. There's a reason why you, you're not good at those things at times. There's a root. It's not just because you do the wrong thing, but there's a root to that. There's something that needs to be pulled out. It's not just a behavior that needs to be modified, but there's something. And our STEPS program, the recovery program, is going to go after the roots. It's not about changing external action, but it's about, it's built around what's going on in your heart. When people come to, to us, me and Margie, and say, hey, my, like, our marriage is a wreck. Like, can you help me fix it? Typically, okay, typically, 100% of the time, there's a heart issue that's going on. There's not just husband, you need to help doing the dishes more, wife, you need to stop nagging more, nag, you need to nag less. Those are great things, and they'll help for like, depending on how long you can do them, like a day, a week, but there's a heart issue that needs to happen, that needs to change, and until you attack and pull up the root, nothing's going to change. You don't change the behavior to get to the heart, you change the heart so that the behavior might be changed. I like this next one because it's, it's contrary to what a lot of us have been taught in VBS in school. Uh, I'm at VBS in, in, in Sunday school. Grace-driven effort fights for a reason that goes well beyond consciousness or conscience and peace. Grace-driven effort fights for a reason that goes be well beyond conscience and peace. It's, it's not motivated by the fact that I sin and I feel bad about myself or I sin and I feel bad that I mess things up. I need to change because when I do these things, I feel bad or, or when I do these things, it hurts my marriage or it hurts my life or it hurts my job. Like that's not what grace-driven effort fights for. That's not the reason it fights. The reason grace-driven effort fights is because you realize you have grieved the Holy Spirit and you've made a mockery of the God who loves you. That's the main reason grace-driven effort fights. And this is completely biblical. I mean, David committed adultery, killed a man to cover it up, and he writes in Psalm 51, you and you alone, alone Lord, have I sinned. Wait a second, like, didn't he kill a guy? Didn't, surely he sinned against him. He, he slept with his wife, and they had a child together. Surely he sinned against someone there. But he says, you and you alone, Lord, have I sinned against. Grace-driven effort understands that when we sin, our hearts break because God has been so good and beautiful to us and we've, made, um, we've mocked and belittled him with our actions and our attitudes. We've grieved the Holy Spirit so we made little of his name. It holds this idea that we've mocked and belittled the God of the universe. So our motivation for killing sin in our lives is not that it ruins my life or hurts my family or makes me feel bad when I do this, but our motivation to transform is that we've 
grieved a God that's been so good and beautiful to us. Paul, we talked about this before, but Paul draws this distinction between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. That worldly sorrow is this idea that uh, I got busted, I got caught, and I made a mess of my life, and I'm really sorry. And when people get caught in their sin, and it hurts their marriage, and it hurts their family, there's tears, and, and it could look like repentance. But what Paul says is worldly sorrow leads to death, but godly sorrow leads to life. And godly sorrow is this idea that I don't want to live this way any longer because it hurts the heart of the God who has done so much for me and has acted so beautifully towards me. Grace-driven effort comes from being dead to sin, not just forsaking it. We have to realize that we don't just leave sin behind, but that we're dead to sin, that we have the ability to say no to sin because we've been, we're dead to it and we're alive to Christ. See, before Christ, we don't have the ability to not sin. We're, the Bible uses words like, you are held captive by sin. You are a slave to sin. It's the reason why Jesus said the truth will set you free because that means without the truth, we're not free. We're enslaved to something. We're controlled by something. We're controlled by our sin. But when, when, we, when we're in Christ, we've been made dead to sin and we're alive to Christ. And so we don't just forsake sin, we're dead to it. We don't have to do it anymore. That brings me to my last point. This is the one I love. And then we'll close. Grace-driven effort is violent. It's rage-filled and violent. Now, those aren't two words you usually accompany with Christianity, but it's absolutely true. The Bible uses these words all the time. I mean, it says in verse five, the very first verse we read in 5 to 17, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. That word death, put to death, is actually more better translated in, from the Greek as murder. Murder, therefore, what is earthly in you. Like it's this idea of violence and rage filled. Like I, I, I have to kill this sin. I have to murder this sin because the nature, my earthly nature is not what I want. It, and, and, it, and it hates the residual effects of sin. I have to kill it. it want, grace-driven effort wants it to die. It wants it to be put to death. It doesn't want to give it any quarter in your life, give it any room. It doesn't want it to starve it and try and control it. But here's the thing in Christianity. We like to make a lot of sins pets instead of killing them. We want to make sin pets. We, we like these things. We like this sin. And so we want to keep it in our life a little bit so that when, when something happens at work that makes me angry or, or something sad happens, I can run back to the sin for comfort instead of running to the God of the universe for comfort. So no matter what that is, whether it's anger or lust, when, when you feel unloved in your marriage, you're going to run to this lust. You're going to run to the computer screen because it gives you momentary comfort. You keep, instead of killing that, you leave it as a pet so that there's always that option for you to seek comfort instead of seeking the God of the universe. We have to kill the sin. And we do that using grace-driven effort. So to wrap all this up, and we'll close with a couple songs, but verse 11 says, Here... Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. 
we are a unified group as a church of a bunch of different individuals who come from a bunch of different backgrounds, but Christ is in all and Christ is all. And he calls us from different backgrounds, whether you grew up in church your whole life, you went to Sunday school, or you started going to church as an adult or a teenager. We're all one in Christ. We're all united in Christ. doesn't matter how long you've been playing this game or how long you've been doing this. God is for you. He wants you to mature in Christ and he's giving you the weapons and the things to do. He's giving you a new heart. He's giving you the weapons. And my prayer is that, again, lastly, we would just take this serious enough to do something about it. But again, not do it because I think I have to. Not do it because if I don't, God will be angry. But do it because we're so moved by God's love and beauty that we want to make much of his name and make much of who he is. Righteousness will not be obtained by obeying the law. It's already given to us in Christ, but we mature because of our love for him and because of what he's done for us. So we'll close with a couple songs and then I'll come back up and we'll pray uh, and close tonight or this morning rather. Let's, let's pray. Father, I just uh, come before you, Lord, just thankful for this morning, thankful for your word, God. Uh, I pray that as we embark on this uh, endeavor of discipleship and, and getting after the roots of our sins, Lord, and, and maturing in Christ, Lord, that we would use grace-driven effort and not legalism or the law to try and do what Christ has already done, um, but we'd use grace-driven effort, Lord. Father, we love you. Uh, and we thank you. I pray this in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys.